Welcome to the sermon podcast of Forks Community Church, located in Easton, Pennsylvania. For more information about the church, please go to ForksCommunityChurch.org. If you enjoyed this sermon and want others to hear about it, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Thank you very much and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, we are going to begin a new series called Enough. And as you heard me mention in my prayer, it's all about contentment. So the next three weeks, um, including today, we're going to talk about the pursuit of contentment, the paradox of contentment, and today the profitability of contentment under the sermon title, Greater Than. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had to kind of convince yourself of the profitability of contentment. That sounds like a very deep philosophical exercise. But maybe you've gotten to a place where uh, you really wanted something, right? And um, you were wrestling with whether this was something that you should really buy. But in your heart of hearts, you really desire it, right? And I'm not exempt from such, such things. So for a little while, uh, I really wanted an e-bike. You know what an e-bike is? And maybe So they can look like a regular bike, a mountain bike, or even like a moped. They have fat tires on them, but they run on electric, and you can go like on one charge, like up to 50 miles. So my neighbor had one. He's going down the street, and it looked really cool, has really cool headlight, and I talked to him about it. He's like, yeah, I rode over to Phillipsburg and back on one charge, and I was like, man, you know. I really like those bikes. I really want one. And with gas being so high, you know, it would really help me save on gas if I just ride from my house on Apple Blossom Road here to the office. You know, that that uses up a lot of gas, not the best gas mileage. So, you know, I was trying to convince myself of, you know, this could really be economical. And if our president gives us another stimulus, maybe I'll just be able to get one. Well, that didn't happen, all right? And so I'm over it. I did not get an e-bike. That doesn't mean I won't have one in the future. But for now, I realize, you know what? It's probably profitable for me not to buy a bike. Now, I'm sure that you haven't been in a position where you maybe wanted an e-bike, but maybe it was something else. We all have those things that we want, those things that we think we need. And especially living here in suburbia, here in Forks Township, which is the second most wealthiest municipality, in Northampton County, we see a lot of people who have a lot of things. And I think a lot of us live in nice homes and we have a pretty high quality of life. And so a lot of times we're getting hit by these ads, you know, people telling us that we need this, we need that. And sometimes we just get to the place where we say, what's the point of resisting? Have you ever been there where you just say, you know, what's the point of of resisting? I know I can't take everything, anything with me to the grave, But why not just enjoy all I can while I have this time on earth, right? That's a a fair question. And that's actually a philosophy of life, too. Hey, we can't take it with us. But I might as well just enjoy everything I can while I can. And so we got to come back to this question, why is contentment a greater gain than pleasure? What's so profitable about contentment? Well, that's a question that 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10 answers. And so let's, let's actually see what it says. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is a, an epistle written by the Apostle Paul. It's a letter written to a cool pastor named Tim. 
Uh, it was a young pastor that Paul had invested in, and he's kind of giving him final instructions. Hey, here's what you need to do. If you, if you want to have a healthy church, if you want to thr- thrive, then follow these instructions. And here's what he says about contentment, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought no- nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So our our key verses is really that first verse there, verse 6, that says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And so my hope for all of us here today is that um, as a result of this message that we would want to align our desires with God's desire. And so by the time we would leave here, we, we would say, yeah, contentment, godliness with contentment really is the greater gain. So that's, that's our big idea here this morning, that we desire the greater gain of godliness with contentment, taken right from verse 6. Now, before we go here any further, I think it's important we define our terms. What do we mean by godliness? What do we mean by contentment? I think it's important that we do that. So godliness, and this is my definition. I came up with it. I didn't borrow it from anyone. It's a life that is oriented by and lived for Jesus Christ. So we're, that's taken actually from 1 Timothy 3.16, where he talks about godliness, and he says that godliness really is a Jesus-shaped life. Notice what it says, that the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's all about Jesus. So godliness really is living a Jesus-shaped life, that if you're living a godly life, your life looks and lives like Jesus. That's what godliness is. Now, contentment, very easy, is satisfaction with life's basic needs. It's taken right here from the text, verse 8. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Now, honestly, we read that, and we're like, well, that doesn't sound like fun. Right? I mean, let's be honest. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Well, we're going to unpack that here this morning. And so the big question is, why is godliness with contentment the greater gain? And then how do we get there? How do we achieve that satisfaction in our lives? And so again, we come back to this question, why not pursue living a life of pleasure? It certainly seems profitable, right? Because I can't take it with me. So I might as well just enjoy all I can and live my life for just enjoying as much as I can. Let's just go out and get e-bikes, you know, whatever I set my mind to, let's just do it. Well, the basic reason we shouldn't do that here, according to 1 Timothy 6, is that we expose ourselves to great danger with that mindset. And there are actually three dangers that he outlines here. And don't worry, we're going to get to the good stuff, right? But first, we begin with the dangers, the bad news. So there's three dangers that we need to avoid. The first one is the danger of spiritual harm. The idea here is that... um, By pursuing that life of pleasure, living this life of greed, we ensnare ourselves to harmful desires. Notice what he says here, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires. 
Now, Paul is writing this because there's actually some people in the church who've already succumbed to these desires. There were some false teachers in the church who were not preaching truth about Jesus Christ. And it showed up in their behavior. They actually thought godliness is a way to make money. And we have that today, right? There are certain um, preachers on TV who openly talk about, if you send me $100, like God will bless you twofold, right? So this kind of stuff is still happening today. And so even all the way back in the first century, this stuff was happening. And it still happens today. And so the idea is, if we don't curb our desires, those desires then become cravings. And the more we, make, we fall into those desires, those desires become habits, and then it becomes a lifestyle. So I just read a, a great book by pastor and author John Mark Comer called Live No Lies. And in the book, he outlines the devil's strategy to subtly wreak havoc in our lives. And here's how he described it. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. It's right there in front of you. Deceitful ideas, that's the devil's work, that play to disordered desires, that's what the Bible calls the flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society. That's the world, or some theologians call the anti-trinity. The devil, the world, the flesh. Those are the three things that work against us in our lives as followers of Jesus. And so the devil's strategy in our life is to sow those deceitful ideas in our minds to draw us away from God to spiritual ruin. That's exactly what he did with Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He sowed seeds of doubt in her mind, which appealed to her disordered desires, which led her and Adam away from God. Listen to what he said to her. When she says, if we partake of this tree, we will die. Notice what he flat out says, no, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right there, that statement is designed to cause Eve to doubt God's goodness. In other words, the serpent said, and we hear things like this today, eat the fruit, buy it, fulfill your desire, life will be better. Isn't that the marketing messages we hear from a lot of things? Isn't that the inner talk going on in our minds a lot? But life didn't get better for Eve, it got worse. And so as, as you hear me saying this, I want you to be aware what are the deceitful ideas that culture is telling me that I'm prone to believe? What are the deceitful ideas that I'm starting to buy into that are no longer going unchecked? It's important that we keep those in check because if we don't, those seeds are going to grow into insatiable cravings which then rule our hearts. So that is where this danger of, you know, just living for pleasure lies. We have to fight that battle here in the mind. We have to fight that deceit with truth, which is exactly what Jesus did, Luke chapter 4, when he was tempted by the devil. He countered each of those temptations by quoting Deuteronomy 
of all. <laughs> Every verse was from the book of Deuteronomy. And so Jesus was rehearsing these truths in his mind. How did he combat the evil one? With truth. And that's what we have to do as well. Instead of desiring greed, we need to desire godliness. It's more profitable for you to pursue a life of contentment because you're going to avoid the danger of spiritual harm. Secondly, you will also avoid the danger of financial ruin. Notice here in verse 9, it talks about how these desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. So let's state the obvious here. There is a, a danger of financial ruin. Let me just say one name, Bernie Madoff. So what was Bernie Madoff known for? Ponzi scheme. Yeah, so he's getting money from this person, but then using money from someone else over here to pay them. Yeah, it's a Ponzi scheme, and he was very effective at it for a while. He got rich of it, off of it, but what happened to a lot of other people? Financial ruin. Yes. Now, that's kind of an extreme case, is it not? But I think the, the lesson here for us um, as followers of Jesus, or even not followers of Jesus, just a basic lesson of wisdom, is that before we make significant financial investments, we seek financial counsel. I am no financial wizard. I don't pretend to be Mr. Finance. But I will say this from our experience. When Tori and I uh, were first called to ministry, at first pastor, we knew that we, had a, we wanted to buy a home in Hellertown, where the first church I pastored was located. And we sat down with an elder in our church who was a financial advisor. And we said, hey, we want to know if financially we can do this right now. Like, does this make sense for us? Because we did not want to be naive. We did not want to just say, oh, yeah, let's do this, get a mortgage, and then be in big trouble. And that was right around the time uh, the market crashed, too. So it was 2008. So, you know, things were kind of dicey. So uh, the lesson for us today is that we seek financial counsel before we just jump into something that sounds like it's going to make us a lot of money, right? If it sounds too good to be true, it's probably not true. So there's just my word of wisdom, pastoral wisdom for us all. Proverbs commends that we seek out wise counsel uh, before making any significant financial investment. So let's heed that wisdom and act on it so that we can avoid that danger of financial ruin. But perhaps even the greater ruin here is the danger of spiritual ruin. And that ruin is wandering away from Christ completely and finally. And that's what Timothy writes about here, or Paul writes to Timothy, that those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he goes on to talk about that, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, as I mentioned, there were some in the church of Ephesus that already succumbed to that danger. He mentions two by name in uh, chapter one, I believe, uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who, and I quote, he says, they shipwrecked their faith. Boy, that's just graphic imagery there, isn't it? Think of a ship hitting the rocks. That's what they did to their faith. Now, we might know uh, a more well-known example than these two, and, and that's Judas. He ultimately shipwrecked his faith. And what's interesting about Judas 
is that he had the appearance of godliness without contentment. But ultimately, his love of money drove him to spiritual ruin. And I think the scariest thing about Judas is that he looked a lot like us. When you read the accounts in the gospel, when Jesus speaks about the one who's going to betray them, they're not looking around going, oh, yeah, it's Judas. They're actually like, well, I don't know who it is. It's not like Judas was wearing designer sandals or something. But he had them fooled. But what Jesus could see was in here. Jesus could see in his heart. And I think that's what's so scary about the example of Judas, is that he looked and played the part. But yet his heart was far from Christ. And the difference between Judas and Peter, who also betrayed Jesus, uh, Jesus, was that Peter repented for his betrayal, and Judas never did. Judas actually went out, he gave the money back to the Pharisees, and he went out and hung himself. Judas experienced spiritual ruin, which John 17, 12 refers to as the son of destruction. Those are Jesus' words. And when he cleaned all the disciples' feet, he said, you are clean, but not all of you. That's a reference to Judas. But no, no one else knew it. And, and I think that, again, that's the scary part, is he didn't come across as this greedy person. He had this form of godliness, but not the power. And so Judas really does serve as a warning to us that greed truly does kill. That it, it can hurt you and harm you as well as others. So we would be wise to, to, learn, to learn from these individuals who shipwrecked their faith like Judas. We would be wise to learn from them and see godliness with a contentment as the greater gain. Okay, now that you're all depressed, like, like that's all the bad stuff. That's kind of all the heavy stuff. But it's stuff that we got to take seriously. That we don't avoid those warnings and those dangers. But there's another side to this whole issue of contentment, and that is, what do I really gain? What do I really gain by living this life of godliness with contentment? Now, what's interesting is here in the verses that I read, you probably notice Paul doesn't kind of pull out anything positive per se. But he does later at the end of the chapter in verse 17. And he actually says, what we acquire by living this life of godliness with contentment is a greater joy of God's good gifts. A greater joy of God's good gifts. Look what he says here in verse 17. And he's speaking to the rich. So, uh, just as an aside, it is not immoral to be wealthy. It's not immoral to have wealth. But what can be immoral is your attachment to it and how you use it. You guys understand that? Okay, good. So here's what he says. Instruct those who are rich. He's talking about those in the church who have means, they have wealth. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, 
but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So in other words, what he's telling Timothy to instruct to those who are wealthy is, don't get attached to your riches, but by all means, get attached to God. Keep a loose hold on your riches, but strengthen your grip on God. Well, again, we we come back to kind of putting yourself in the shoes of people who are maybe not Christians and are like, well, that sounds kind of lame. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. As we're looking at this from the view of a skeptic, oh, that still kind of sounds lame. Doesn't sound very enjoyable. And I don't think I'll be too happy if I really embrace this lifestyle. But here's the surprising truth. If we set our hope on God and we truly embrace this lifestyle of godliness with contentment, we will experience greater enjoyment in life. So think about this. The greater intimacy we have with our creator and redeemer, the greater enjoyment of the creator's gifts. No matter how much you have, you will have greater enjoyment of his gifts. I love this quote from Miroslav Volf. Isn't that a name of a theologian? Notice what he says. Attachment to God amplifies and deepens enjoyment of the world. Boy, that's true. Attachment to God amplifies and deepens enjoyment of the world. And so I think, I hope what you understand here, and I'll pull this out for you. Sometimes we get this idea that contentment is just being stoic, detached, you know, just mm, kind of boring. It's not that at all. It's a life of deep satisfaction and joy. So contentment really is this this life of of great enjoyment and God and his goodness, regardless of what you have. I'm sure you probably know some people, family members, you work with people, where you look at what they have, and they have a lot, and they're still not happy. There's always something something more to be gained. But isn't this the lesson the author of Ecclesiastes learned? And you can read his story. He he gave himself to pursuing pleasure and possessions. But in the end, he's like, I found them unprofitable. Vanity, vanity. It's all meaningless. But in the end, he discovered that true satisfaction is gained in God. And when we have that relationship right with him, we enjoy the things out here in the horizontal plane. Here's what he said. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands. Because this is for all of humanity. In other words, you enjoy God, you enjoy the things he's given you. And the more you enhance this relationship, the greater joy you have in this relationship out here. You know, I used to have this idea that if I was a true faithful Christian, I needed to be stoic and kind of, you know, not enjoy things too much. But then I was like, that is crazy. When I read 1 Timothy 6, 17, it just opened up things like, yeah, we as believers should be the most joyful in life. And sometimes we look like we're the sourest people. Like, that shouldn't be. We should be people where others look at us like, wow, you really enjoy life. What's in your bank account? Like, well, not much, but I'm enjoying it because God's the author of life. In him I live and move and have my being. 
The Apostle Paul learned this same lesson, and he's writing from prison, and he says this, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-footed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. So notice that verse is not about competency. It's not about scoring a touchdown and then saying, I can do all things through Christ. It's about circumstances. Whether we're living in a time where we don't have much, we're content in Christ. But I think the harder lesson is on the flip side. When we're living in plenty to say, I'm enjoying this stuff, but I know ultimately my satisfaction's in Jesus. I think that's what's hard here in ministering to suburbia is that so many people out there are like, I don't need God. I live in my nice home. I, have, I don't need him. And that, that's hard to minister to this climate. But you know, when that crisis comes along, what happens? They're freaking out. Yeah. And that's when we have to be here and ready. And that's why we're so big on relationships so that they know, oh, yeah, Jay's a Christian. I'm going to go to him. Yeah, he's with Forks Community Church. Yeah. So that's why these relationships are so important, that we're listening, we're eating, we're serving, we're sharing. And it's important that we're living this life of contentment. You know, these are hard things because all of us want things, right? I love going out to eat. It probably shows, okay, yeah, you're thinking it. That's why I mountain bike, too. <laughs> Cooking is winning right now. Um, but th- these, are, these are tough things that we wrestle with. But I think as we grow in Christ, we realize, I, I don't need as much as I think I do. And it's hard to curb those desires. So I, if, if you're reacting this way, I get it. I'm, I've preached this to myself all week wrestling with these things. I still kind of want that e-bike. But I also have a real mountain bike I can just ride here too. And so the lesson for us in all this is that we really can thrive. And that thriving is not circumstantial, as Paul showed us. It's all about trusting in Christ and experiencing satisfaction in him. And my hope for you is that you will walk away here from this morning going, yeah, that's a gain I can have regardless of what's in the bank account. I I can enjoy that regardless of what's in the bank account. So then how do we do this? Practically speaking, how how do we really do this? Well, It doesn't happen. Paul says it's learned. It's learned. But I think one way we can start that learning is with your challenge. And here it is. You find daily satisfaction in Christ, the bread of heaven. And so instead of entertaining all those deceitful ideas that appeal to your disordered desires, you feed your mind on life-sustaining truth. And you start putting scriptures like this in your mind from Psalm 16 too. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. 
Remember my cow illustration, chewing the cud? That's where this comes into play. That you're ingraining this in your mind. Why do you think Jesus was able to repeat that right back to the devil? It was in his mind. It was ingrained. He was chewing the cud of God's word. And when challenged, he spit it out. Boy, that's graphic for you, isn't it? He spit it out. Here's another one, and these are my favorites. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So Jonathan Edwards said this, there's a difference between knowing honey is sweet and sensing it is sweet. There's a difference between knowing God is good and sensing in your heart that he's truly good. Profound difference. And I hope you know that difference in your heart this morning. We can go around going, God is good, God is good all the time. Yes, but do you sense he is good in here? Now, another way to sense the goodness of God and to um, taste Christ is through communion. How about that? It's something we do here monthly, but we do it as a reminder as we relate it to contentment where our satisfaction comes from. It comes from Christ. And we have this uh, visual uh, reminder here. We have the bread and the cup. And so by partaking of these, we remind ourselves that Jesus truly does satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst. And he used all those different metaphors. I am the living water. I am the vine. Where does this uh, grape juice come from? It comes from the vine. I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of heaven. That manna that Israel experienced in the wilderness that foreshadowed the best bread to come. Better than wonder bread. And so um, this morning, you know, before we partake this together, let, let's hear Jesus' words from John 6, where he uses this bread of life metaphor. No one, comes, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. He's talking about spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst. And so this is a time for us in which we as followers of Jesus, we can reset our affection upon Christ again. So if we've realized, man, I've been putting my affection in other places, we confess that, and we renew our commitment to Jesus again, who offered his broken body and shed blood to cleanse and redeem us. And so if you have received salvation by grace through faith, we invite you to share in this meal with us. And so what I'm going to do is just allow a moment of silence for us to pray, confess, renew our commitment to God. And when you are ready, you eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You, I won't be giving a prompt, but when you are ready, you can go ahead and do that. And then the worship team will come up and close us out with a song. So let's just bow our heads in silence.